นโมทัสสะกุวาทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวาทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสังAnd those of you that have looked at it will recognize the verse. He says that the essence of Buddhism is peace, and this peace arises from truly knowing the nature of all things. Very early on in my um, encounter with Ajahn Chah, I was, I would say, quite profoundly. Influenced by the way he presented Dhamma, um, and there was an image that he used in talking about the nature of the heart, where he says that it's like he he likened it to water. He said it's like water is pure and clear; it doesn't matter what you put in it. You put yellow dye in it, and it looks yellow. You put green dye in it, and it looks green. But the essential nature of water is still the same. You take the dye out, and the pure, clear water is still there. And so he was using this image to instruct us to consider, to have the view, to cultivate the view that this is the true nature. This is our true nature. This is the nature of our hearts already, pure and clear. And the influence that this teaching had on me was like a huge relief. The view that I'd been carrying was that I was somehow lacking, that I was, I was, uh, I was damaged goods, that I needed to do a lot to fix myself. I had to get good. I had to get better than I was. I had to become peaceful, and so on. But With this view, as Ajahn Chah was pointing out, it's not a matter of becoming more peaceful. It's a matter of stop believing in the disturbances. Is the only reason he said the only reason that the mind appears confused is because we get lost in moods and mental impressions. And that's I found that really helpful. From the very beginning, my first year as a monk, when I came across this teaching, it basically contradicted, as I said, the The view that I was having that I had to become peaceful, that I was somehow inherently damaged, and and um, it reminds me of of what uh, a friend, some of you might remember, our dear friend Sue Warren, who uh, lived with us here for many years, and and she, I was very touched when she told me how, when she was a young girl, and and the preacher used to tell her that you're a sinner, you know, you're you're a sinner, and 
And under her breath, she used to say, I am not a sinner, I am not a sinner. And she'd keep repeating it to herself, I am not a sinner. She was very stubborn. And, and then I think maybe it was in her 40s or 50s when um, a bhikkhu from Thailand, the Venerable Dirawangsa, was over here. And she heard her first Dhamma teaching. And as soon as she heard it, she said, oh, at last, I knew I wasn't a sinner. I knew I wasn't a sinner. And... I think there is something worth really checking out, this view that we have, that we've got to do something more to become peaceful. Because if we're not careful, trying to become peaceful can in fact propel us into more confusion, more disturbance. It's like continually judging ourselves for being wrong the way we are. I'm not good enough. Met people have been putting forth superb effort for years, keeping precept, going on retreats, and and always there seems to be like some some virus in their in their computer going on about you're a bad person, you're a bad person, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And if we don't stop and address this, it can even though we can be making lots of good effort, it can be undermining us, and that's a great pity. So the Buddha and all the great teachers wanted us to understand this is already our true nature. This is the nature of the heart. The heart is already peaceful. Our task, our job, is to stop getting caught up in the activity of the mind. The uh, first teacher I lived with in Thailand, Venerable Ajahn Tate, some of you will have heard me talk about this before, and the uh, first interview I had with him, which still stays with me and for which I'm eternally grateful, where he highlighted what was important in practice. He said, what you need to do in your practice is tell the difference between the heart and the activity of the heart. Or in Thai, jit, agan kong jit. If you know the jit, if you know the heart, that which is already peaceful then you're not going to get caught up in the argan, the activity of the heart. Or you could say you've got to tell the difference between the space and that which passes through the space. Because of our unawareness and our heedless habits, so much stuff passes through space, and even if it's beautiful stuff, the consequence of getting caught up in it and of clinging to it means we spoil it and we suffer. And from the perspective of realized beings, it's all totally unnecessary. It's not like there's anything wrong with us. It's not like we have to do anything to become anything. You know, the, you know, Buddha was very clear about this, this. This endless trying to become something more is just stirring things up. And he analysed very uh, specifically, very clearly, uh, those of you that are familiar with traditional Buddhist teachings, uh, you know how the Buddha analysed desire or craving. And he wanted us to be quite specific about this. You see, you've got this, this word craving or tanha, it's kind of like thirst. There's not enough, this aching for satisfaction. And he identified these three types. There's karma tanha, bhava tanha, vibhava tanha. This craving for sensual gratification. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental impression. We just want more of it. Yeah, something to look at, hear, smell, taste, touch. Yeah. Sense objects, believing that 
Somehow we're going to be happy when we get this. But then there's another variation on the theme of, of tanha, of craving. Bhava tanha, this craving to become something, to get. And it could be to get peaceful, to get the jhanas, to get samadhi, to get enlightened. Hmm. If, we, if we don't recognize this as a tendency of mind, then we might think we're getting spiritual, but we're actually just getting more confused. And that would be really unfortunate. So we need to be subtle in our investigations. And that's why, again, why formal practice is so important. That we can put some time aside to unplug, to slow down, quieten down, listen. So we get another perspective. Not just busy trying to have wholesome desires and get rid of unwholesome desires, but to quietly in a feeling investigation look into our relationship to desire because maybe we're burning ourselves with these desires you know? like, like we power tanha so power tanha is craving to become we power tanha is, is a craving to annihilate or get rid of and all these these, these are quite different different f- flavors of craving sensual gratification craving to become, craving to annihilate, get rid of. So it's helpful. The Buddha wanted us to look into these and, and get to see them for ourselves. See, we, think we're, we think we're on the path because we're so busy trying to get rid of our anger. We're so desperately judgmental. I'm such an angry person. You know, I'm a hopeless person. If I die with this anger, I'm going to go to hell for eons. I'm so evil. And trying to overcome our anxieties. Well, if we slow down and have a closer look, let go a little bit of the judging, really be mindful of this force of desire, craving, a shift happens. You see, all right, look, I was caught up in that. Even trying to become a good person is not the way. It's disturbing the mind and is something to be let go of. So having a basic view of practice that accords with Dhamma, accords with reality, that is that peace is what is. The activity, the disturbances, the liking, the disliking, they can be all normal, but if we get lost in them, we suffer. And it's not an obligation. So there's a training to do. And the Buddha was very clear about this. Uh, people are different, and that's helpful to remember. Uh, when you're having conversations with people about practice, you, you some, hear some teachings make sense to you, some teachings don't make sense to you, and that's all right because people are different. The Buddha gave different teachings for different people. He talked about people as being like lotuses, lotus flowers. Some of them are still under the surface of the water. The lotus bud is still under the surface of the water. And then there's other lotuses that are sitting on the top of the water. And there's other lotuses that have risen right above the water. And depending on what sort of character we are, well then there will be an appropriate way of talking about practice, an appropriate way of contemplating Dhamma. um, Those that are still under the surface of the the water need a lot of talking to, need a lot of patience. But then those that have risen above the water, there are such people in the world who all they need is just a few sentences and then they've got it. You know, I've, 
I've met monks in Thailand who they seem to just be wonderfully, radiantly equanimous and contented and happy and wise. And when you talk to them, it's like they never suffered. <laughs> Where did they come from? <laughs> How could that be possible? Well, there are people like that. Yeah, like in the time of the Buddha. Yeah, the people who just listened to just just a few sentences and they were there, finished. Finished their work. Radiant equanimity, completely free from all selfishness and ignorance. Irreversibly. Mm. It's like a, I think I've given the example before, it's like a, a supersaturated solution where a particular chemical is, is, is potentized and the solution reaches a point of supersaturated and all you need is just one more little weeny amount of that chemical and precipitation takes place. Yeah, it's like that. Well, for probably for most of us, we, we're not reached the point of supersaturation because we've heard these teachings over and over again and we still keep making the same mistakes over and over again. But that's all right. At least there's faith and confidence that the practice is worth doing. So understanding that there are that people come from a different place and, and that there's a language suitable for levels of training. And that it does take determination. Mm. That whatever level of training we're at, determination is essential. I was, I was listening to a, um, or watching a review of some research that's been done recently. A woman, Angela Duckworth, Angela Lee Duckworth, been doing this research on what brings about success. She was checking out schools and academies and teachers and offices and, and asking a set of questions to try and identify, is there a way of, of identifying that which actually really brings about success? What sort of people actually reach the goal of their, that they're reaching for, that they're aiming for? whether it's a course of study or excellence in a particular field. And, and uh, she was researching for quite a long time, and the one characteristic which stood out right across the field, it wasn't your, you know, your physical health, it wasn't the wealth of your parents, it wasn't the socio-economic background that you came from, it wasn't whether you're good-looking, it wasn't even your IQ. It was what my father used to call stickability. Stickability, son, that's what you need. <laughs> or in Pali, aditana parami, determination. Angela called it grit. So what you need is grit. And this ability to stick with something. And, and the research she was doing, it was interesting to see that um, she was quoting a Dr. Dweck who did this research at Stanford University and the suggestion is that the people who have this determination that really counts, that really makes a difference, people who've got this determination, they persist, they keep coming back, they try again, try again, try again, stand up and try again, no matter how many times they fall over, they pick up and try again and start again. The people who have it all seem to have a particular mindset, which is that they trust they can change. They trust, they believe that you can learn to learn. Now, not everybody's got that. And there's perhaps all sorts of reasons one could speculate about 
why people have that ability, why they don't have that ability, but it's really worth cultivating. Wherever we're at in training, to really value that ability to trust that we can develop, that we can learn. In the Theravadan tradition, there is uh, identified three stages of training, Pariyati, Patipati, and Patiwedi in Pali. And um, again, there's... Uh, there's a language for each stage of training. And I think, personally, I think it's really important to know this because otherwise we can get confused. Like, pariyati is study. It's about studying about Dhamma. Books. Patipati is practice. Patiwedi is realisation. And so to know that there is a language that is relevant to each stage of training. It's like teaching physics. You, know? you can teach physics a certain language at high school, you can teach physics a certain language at university, you can teach physics a certain language at postgrad. Now, if you're talking postgrad language to a high school student, how's that going to be? Well, there are people like that. There are liberated beings around who sometimes they talk and about Dhamma and language, which is just confusing. You know, from their perspective of realisation, there's nothing to do. You listen to Krishnamurti, and there's no point in meditating, no point in doing any practices. And, you know, well, actually, Krishnamurti did meditation for many hours, for many years, and did all sorts of spiritual practices. Mm. So it's helpful, as I said, to understand this, that for somebody who's at the level of pariyati or study, they need to be encouraged in their understanding to feel confident that there is a goal. There is a goal. Here I am, I'm confused, and the Buddha and the great teachers have, have practiced and realized the goal of liberation from suffering, freedom from suffering, and, and you can go through these stages. There's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold path and the Bodhipakya Dhammas and the Paticca Samapada and you can study these things, you can study about Dhamma and in so doing we're training our thinking we're training the pathways of our thinking which is very important previously our thinking was trained and conditioned along worldly lines that um, like when you get what you want you'll be happy that's you know the normal story of the world well what the Dhamma says is there's something quite different and so we need to, it's appropriate to study the books to listen to the teachers to listen to their experience, to learn from their mistakes, to learn from their successes and to take that in, to contemplate that and but that's not actually practice, pariyati is not patipati, it's more like preparation and the, as I said, there's a language for that. We hear, like people practicing at the stage of, of pariyati, of study, they get very enthusiastic about the information that they've acquired. And Buddhist information about the path is phenomenal. There's miles of data, tons of books, hours of talks given about Dhamma. And you can assimilate all this information Yet it is, I think, uh, from the perspective of realisation, which surely is what we're interested in, 
to uh, consider what Dajan Chai used to say, he says, talking to the Western monks, he says, you guys, you know so much about Dhamma, you don't know Dhamma. You know so much about everything, you don't know anything. We can overdose. And we can, by getting caught up in, in Bhavatanha and in greed for information about Dhamma, we can overdose on it. It's so delicious to know something, you know, we're, we're, especially with our, our particular kind of education. We just, we just love understanding. It's really, it's like, it's like a seriously delicious cheesecake, you know, on another level. You know, it's, just, it's just really delicious, this explanation, this gorgeous explanation about reality. Mm. However, when somebody insults you and calls you an idiot in public and you get angry, <laughs> what good is all that information going to do? If we haven't trained ourselves, if we haven't practiced, actually it's, it's, it's of limited value. Now, not to dismiss it, you know, sometimes the scholars get upset and criticize meditation monks because meditation monks are, you know, can be a bit critical of the scholars and sometimes the criticism is valid but sometimes the criticism is not valid. You know? It's important. Pariyati, preparation. It's like climbing a mountain. And if you're just doing a little hill walking, well, so what? You know, it's okay. You know, some serious hill walking, well, then maybe do a little research and maybe you've got some some crampons, maybe you've got aluminium crampons, maybe you've got titanium crampons. And, and, but if you're going to do some serious mountain climbing, like Kilimanjaro, or you're going, you're going to do Mount Everest, you know, then you've really got to do some research. Yeah. It'd be really foolish to go out there climbing Mount Everest without getting the information on what happens to, to your blood chemistry when you get above a certain altitude. It's important information to know. How fast can you go? Your body temperature has gone down. The, you're at a certain altitude. The pressure is, is at this level. And what is the effect on your blood? What's taking place? Yeah. And if that happens, you can't trust your thinking anymore because it's not enough oxygen in the blood. That's dangerous. Now, you want that information. Where did it get that information? From pariyati, from preparation. So the preparation is important. But one of the characteristics of preparation, even though you can be very enthusiastic about the goal, and you meet this, you know, Buddhist scholars, very enthusiastic about the goal and very enthusiastic about it, but they argue a lot. And they end up arguing, even within the same tradition. And this, this school of thought and that school of thought and this religion and that religion and who's got the best, the best images, the best icons, the best paintings. Um, but it's all theory. That's not practice. That's about Dhamma. And yes, you can get very enthusiastic, but it's enthusiastic about there and then. When we start to really practice, when it's patipati, not pariyati, but patipati, it's a different story altogether. It's here and now. Pariyati is characterized by there and then. Patipati is characterized by here and now. Practice is a different sort of thing. At the level of pariyati, of preparing, of, of getting interested in talking and arguing and discussing and considering how other people did the journey, there can be lots of energy and enthusiasm um, and lots of arguing about who's right. But when you move to patipati, when you move to practice, when you're really doing it, you've got no time for that. And then people who practice purification of the heart of any religion... When you get together, you get on together. 
practitioners get on together. There's only people who are studying that don't get on together. And, and so it's helpful to have that information. You, you see why religions argue with each other. Well, they're not practicing religion. They're only preparing themselves. You know, they're, kind of, they're alike at, at, at high school. They haven't had to earn a living yet. When you're at high school, it's still all right. You're just depending on mum and dad to pay the bills. You can still be arrogant and, and cheeky and, 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 and irresponsible because mum and dad are going to pay the bills. You're not really earning your own living yet. But when you're practicing, that's when you start to earn your own living and you realise you can't indulge anymore in those speculations about comparing who's right and who's wrong. If you're climbing the mountain, if you've already put foot on the mountain and you're starting to climb the mountain, this is where you're at. What does it feel like under your feet? You know, are your feet firm? What's the temperature? What are your friends doing? Who are you tied to? What time of the day is it? What's the wind feel like? Yeah, that's here and now. And so it is with practice. When we're really practicing, we have to sacrifice, we have to let go of the indulgence in the fantasy about what the journey is going to be like. And it's a very different energy. Very different feeling. And it is a sacrifice. When you're speculating about the journey, whether it's climbing a mountain or the spiritual journey, when you're speculating about it, it's kind of like a, a fantasy. It's like watching a movie, but you're sitting in a chair. And you can turn the movie off when you want to if it gets too scary. It doesn't really matter what's on the movie. You can turn the heating up, stop, go and have a cup of tea. Whatever. It's just a movie. That's pariyati. And there's a certain, as I said, a certain enthusiasm, a certain energy and vitality. And you get people who are seriously convinced that they're into a good thing there. But they don't really know anything because they haven't set their foot on the mountain yet. They haven't really started practicing letting go. At the level of pariyati, it's all about being sure. At the level of patipati, the level of practice, sometimes you're sure, sometimes you're not sure. At the level of pariyati, your preparation or study, you know, doubt is an enemy. But when it's practice, doubt comes along, and you, oh, that's interesting, I've got to deal with that. Doubt's real. Doubt's like this. You can't just speculate about it. You can't just think about it. You can't read a book about it. When you come across a crevasse, the point is, how are you going to get across it? And how deep is it? What happens if you fall into it? And so it is in spiritual practice. It's very different from spiritual speculation. Like the difference between reading a book about snorkeling. You can read about snorkeling and what it's like to have goggles and a and a snorkel and, and be in the water. And, but what's it like when you're actually face down in the water? There's warm water supporting you and you're there amongst these beautiful fish. And that's a totally different experience. You're held by the water. It's a completely different reality. And so it is with practice and study. Now, if we don't understand this, as I said, we can get confused because there's a different language. People at the level of study and preparation, they can't understand people who are practicing often. Once you start practicing, you can understand people at the level of study. And you can understand people at the level of practice. You can un understand different styles of practice, different forms of practice, different religions. Some years ago, Ajahn Punya and I were visiting a Roman Catholic monastery and we were having a conversation with 
very highly respected father there who's a published and recognized translator of um, the German mystic Meister Eckhart. And um, this, uh, this father was explaining to us the, uh, the practice that the monks in this monastery observe and how it's uh, quite different from what a lot of people think they're up to. And um, it's, uh, he was using these uh, Greek words, the apophatic and cataphatic approach to practice. And he explained that the cataphatic tradition is always affirming God, always affirming reality. And generally speaking, in most of the theistic religions, this is what's going on. Always affirming God is like this, God is like that. But in the apophatic tradition, trust and faith is founded in that which is prior to all conditions. It's not trying to become or get hold of or cling to another ultimate condition, but it's trusting so deeply and fundamentally in that which is behind all conditions that it's letting go of everything. Letting go of that which is not God and becoming one with God rather than striving to go forward and cling to an idea of God. Anyway, the point he was making was that uh, these are very different orientations and and Ajahn Punya at the time was a little bit indignant. He says, why don't you talk about this more often? This is really really important stuff. And and the monk was saying, well, you've got to be very careful because those of a cataphatic persuasion can't actually understand those of an apophatic persuasion. An apophatic person who's letting go of everything can understand those who are striving towards a goal. Well, similarly, in our own Buddhist path of practice, those that are at the level of of pariyati, of study, of preparation, they have a certain language and really confident and they can be very very articulate in um, describing the path of practice. But when you listen to them, it doesn't really ring true. So maybe this is what's going on. So the path of practice, once you put your foot on the path and start walking, it involves a whole different experience. Endurance. Enduring the unendurable. So those who are still talking about preparation, about the theory of practice, enduring the unendurable, I mean, what sort of, what's that talk all about? Once you don't have the enthusiasm of beginner's mind anymore, it's not new anymore, you've been at it for a while, you've done a bunch of retreats, you've heard this teacher and that teacher, and then that teacher ran off and got married to his secretary, and that one ran off with their money, and, and the other one, they went and committed suicide, and, and what's happened to your faith now? And you know, You're getting on in years, and you know, you've, you've, it's, it's not as beautiful as it used to be. Well, again, I... To quote from the Christian tradition, I really like the image of the Israelites leaving the land of enslavement in Egypt. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Before they could reach the promised land of Israel, they had to spend 40 years in the desert. You know, not a seven-day retreat. (laughs) 40 years. 40 years. That's what we're talking about. That's Aditana. That's grit. That's endurance, that's perseverance, that's resolve. That's what's called for in practice. Everybody who had lived in the land of enslavement in in Egypt had to die off before they could enter the promised land. In other words, all of our memories of ourselves as somebody who used to be happy when we got what we wanted have to cease before we start to experience the new level of enthusiasm which comes, which is the fruit, the benefit of practice. And you can't imagine that. 
You can't imagine what it's like to float face down with a snorkel in water. You can't imagine it until you've done it. Then, oh, right, that's what that is. And so that's the difference between study and preparation, pariyati, and patipati and practice. And then the third level or third stage of training is is patiwedi, or realization. That's being on the summit. That's arriving. And that's helpful also to recognize that there are people who reach the summit, but they don't know how to talk about it. They come out with all sorts of stuff that actually sounds crazy. You know, it's like, you know, it's like the fish and the turtle. And the turtle, he's been walking along the, the beach and having a great time and talking to other turtles and, and then comes back in the water and is trying to explain to the fish what it was like walking on the beach. And the fish thinks, oh, this turtle's crazy. <laughs> well, the turtle's not crazy. It's just the turtle's been into a different realm of existence. And so it is with those who've realized Dhamma, realized the fruit of practice. It's a whole different story. But sometimes they talk about it in a way whereby you just can't understand. And sometimes they should stop talking because their talking is confusing to people, like saying there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, there's no practice. Well, that might be all right for them, but it's not all right for somebody who's at the earlier stage of practice. Yes, we're at the latter stage of practice. You can understand those who are at the earlier stages of practice, but those at the earlier stage of practice may not be able to understand you. Another aspect of that's beneficial in thinking about these three stages of training is that that the kind of the sense of being somebody doing something, and that's again when you're studying about practice. There's very much a sense of me doing it, me and my problems, me and my aspirations, me and my goal. And I'm doing Buddhism. I'm doing the Dhamma. I'm doing the study. And doing the contemplation. When you're at the level of practice, there's not just doing, there's also not doing. There's not just self, there's also not self. And that's helpful to contemplate. At the level of study, there's definitely self-doing. The level of practice, there's self and there's not self. There's doing and there's not doing. And we're experimenting with both. Self is no longer a fixed position. It's not the case that we always need to be doing something. Like, in the beginning, always doing something, getting somewhere and getting off on that energy of becoming something, becoming spiritual, developing concentration, becoming virtuous, becoming enlightened. Yeah. Once you really start practicing, that's got to go. Got to drop that. Because that's a disturbance. And, and sometimes what's called for is not doing. Investigating that whole impulse, I've got to do something. That's a somebody. And if there's a somebody, there's going to be a suffering. And that's a renunciation, really letting go of that somebody going somewhere. feels very threatening. But when we're at the level of training of practice, we need to go through that. And then if at the level of realization, well, the whole concept of self and not self and doing and not doing becomes irrelevant. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamaya, Namavada, Katasa, Dukara, Namaste.